This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Thank you so much for listening in. Whether you're tuning in live or listening to our podcast, we do appreciate your time. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have a climatologist in the room. Absolutely. Always good to have a climatologist in the room. We try and do it most weeks, but um, there are some weeks where (laughs) the weather's out and we just can't. Well... Yeah, there are some weeks when the weather's not great anyway. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And Dr. Crystal, good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What do you call yourself these days? Oh, I'm a scientist. Hmm. But a lot more. I am. You do other stuff now. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm really into the innovation space at the moment. But, mm. you know, innovation as actually getting stuff done rather yeah. than just inventing things. Yeah, so people actually benefit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a bit of a rant about it on um, ABC Radio Occam's Razor this week. Oh, yeah. 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 So recorded a podcast for them basically talking about that innovation doesn't count unless it makes a difference. Mm, yeah. Nothing in a vacuum. Well, we're going to start off the show with some news, folks, and then we've got a couple of really good guests coming on a little bit later. So, Dr. Ailey, we're going to start with you. What do you got for us? Sure. Well, I have a really interesting story uh, that's come out this week from a group of, well, a group, two people, I should say, uh, in the United States. Now, this is this is some kind of deep thought stuff. This is like fundamental science stuff. This thing is called the Silurian Hypothesis. Oh. So sounds, already it's got, a, it's got a sci-fi... Well, no, yeah. it's funny you say that, actually, because it is actually called the Silurian Hypothesis, named after a Doctor Who episode. I and I'll get, say, to, I'll get to that in a second. Well, that a Doctor Who reference? Well, there you go. It is a Doctor Who reference. So yeah. this is, this is uh, work from um, Professor Gavin Schmidt, who is the director of the NASA Space Study Centre in the US, and also uh, Professor Adam Frank from the University of Rochester. And this was a brainchild of a discussion that they had uh, about, well, you know, what if we're not Earth's first big industrialised civilization. How could we tell and how would we measure that? Hmm. And this kind of came up from discussions associated with this, this concept of, of that people have been talking about lately called the Anthropocene, hmm. where, you know, humans are now having a big enough impact on the Earth that uh, people are saying we'll be able to see it in millions and millions of years' times in the geological record. And so that discussion kind of um, went further and they were saying, well, what if there had been a big industrialised society in the past. And when we say in the past, it's like, yeah, you can look at archaeology and that kind of stuff, Mm. pots and pans and whatnot. But we're talking past past. We're not talking tens of thousands of years ago. We're talking millions, hundreds of millions of years ago. How would you know? Because the geological processes um, that operate on those timescales would have basically destroyed all evidence. (laughs) So you wouldn't have archaeological evidence. So how could you tell? And so they had a discussion about it and basically came up with a bunch of criteria um, that they think would be used now in the future to detect the Anthropocene and so could then be retrospectively used on Earth to detect early civilizations as well, industrialised civilizations. And it was to do with their energy use. Hmm. So looking at things like rapid climate change, so um, signatures of rapid... Um, carbon dioxide and also changes in nitrogen, so fertiliser use associated with agriculture. Um, Again, the agriculture thing, if you had agricultural societies, very, very rapid sedimentation rates, um, rapid erosion rates. And now these things are kind of global scale too, I should say, not just localised, because if you have these industrialised societies, the the kind of hypothesis or the assumption is that they would be global, they wouldn't be regionalised. Things like synthetic 
pollutants, so things anywhere from plastics that don't degrade, although we'll talk about that later, um, plastics that don't degrade, but things like steroids and stuff as well. Mm. There's all those kind of artificial um, molecules they were talking about, finding, you know, evidence of those uh, in in um, the, the geological record. And the last one was stuff like nuclear war, so looking for isotopic signatures um, and things, you know. So at the moment, one of the one of the signatures that we look at at the at the start of the Anthropocene they talk about is this this spike due to uh, nuclear bomb tests um, because that's a signature that you can see in the isotopic record around the world. So looking for stuff like that. So they wanted to use that idea um, and, yeah, so their hypothesis is that those kinds of things would be laid down in the ge- geological record and you could use that to detect whether or not the dinosaurs were actually driving cars around and had megacities, <laughs> <laughs> basically, because that's the timescale that we're talking about. And getting back to this science fiction thing, um, yeah, it was it was named after a Doctor Who episode in which there were these bipedal reptiles, apparently, that uh, lived millions of years ago on Earth. So that's why it's called the Silurian Hypothesis. Mm, very interesting. So interesting kind of thought experiment stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, they're not saying that there was a civilization and they're not saying, you know, but it's just kind but of even, like... But if there was, if how there was, would you actually would you, prove and, it? Yeah. Exactly. And so that's what they're thinking about and not and only that I guess that, they're also thinking about you know if the Anthropocene does lead to yeah. the end of civilization yeah. on earth and in millions yes. of years how yes. will anyone know that we ever existed that's right that's right and also this discussion stemmed out of a, a discussion from well basically they were talking this is published in the journal of uh, astrobiology international journal of astrobiology so they're also talking about it in the context of finding civilizations mm. or evidence of life or past life on other planets so yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's sort of, I, you know, those, those sorts of things are always interesting to me because usually what happens is other type of work comes out of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you, you, you might find that they'll, they'll end up using the same sort of philosophical arguments yeah. to determine other things that's, that's right. not related to, that's right. to this. But, that's um, right. It's fun. It's, it's kind of that higher, just, just, you know, what if kind of just yeah. have a think about it. It's yeah. really just interesting. Yeah, what stuff. would, what would we leave behind? What if? I mean, yeah. because for us at the moment, you know, the, the, the real garbage trail is in, um, in orbit. Yes. Absolutely. So, in it's fact, huge, that's that huge garbage truck. That might be another, you know, yeah. thing that you know. Well, eventually it'll crash back to earth, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, well, someone can stay there. Well, it, you'd look at the Lagrange points. Yes, you know, those stable right. points mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. orbits between mm-hmm. planets where mm-hmm. things can sit there literally for mm-hmm. for a billion years, mm-hmm. and you know, see if there's any junk there. Mm. So, if we if we go to one of the Lagrange points, actually, the James Webb Telescope is going oh, to go. orbit yep. a nearby Lagrange point, uh-huh. and so maybe they can just have a look while they're there and see if there's any oh, crap you from. Could, you should <laughs> contact. Uh, <laughs> Professor Schmidt and Frank and tell them to add that one to check, their, check the Lagrange their points. list. Yeah, yeah it wouldn't hurt. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, what do you got? Well, making headlines this week uh, was is the outbreak of flesh-eating bacteria that's oh. happening right here in Victoria. Oh. Yeah. We, we, we tried to get a guest oh. for that, but uh, unfortunately, uh, no response. It's known, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's known as the Bansdale ulcer, um, and it's a disease that's caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium um, ulcerans, and it's um, it's quite it's quite nasty. It, it's an ulcer, being an ulcer, that basically won't heal. And, it, you know, it kind of starts off just like a pimple or something that's red and itchy, and people often get them on their legs or their feet or their arms. Um, but it just doesn't go away. But it, mm. but at first when people go to the doctor, it's something that they say, oh, if it's not, not hurting you, you know, just wait and see if it gets mm. better. Just wait and see, just wait and see. And people wait months. Some people wait years. And they wait and see and wait and see. And then all of a sudden it turns into this quite, you know, disgusting. large and disgusting yeah. flesh-eating ulcer. Oh. 
Um, and, and globally, um, this disease is actually known as Beruli ulcer, and most of the cases are associated um, and reported in sort of West Africa. However, Australia is actually one of the few countries in the world where it is on the increase, it is on the rise in Australia. Um, you know, in a new report that was published in the Medical Journal of Australia this week um, showed that, you know, last year in 2017 there were 275 cases, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, um, you know, that's up from 180 the year before and less before that before, you know, 10 years ago it was a handful and now mm. it's hundreds. Um, and the problem is no one actually knows how the disease is spreading. So it's found on the Bellarine Peninsula and is now increasingly being seen on the Mornington Peninsula. And we know that globally this disease is often associated with bodies of water. So it's often um, in uh, sort of marshlands or wetlands. But in Australia, it seems to be manifesting in coastal regions. And no one knows how the disease spreads. And it's really important to know that because how are you going to stop people getting it if you don't know how they get it? Um, and uh, so there's various um, hypotheses out there that it's spread by insect bites because it's often found on people's arms and legs. Um, it might mosquitoes could be involved um, but no one's been able to actually isolate animals um, or insects from the wild and actually understand how it's being transmitted one thing we do know in Australia is that M. ulcerans the bacteria that causes the ulcer is actually found in possums and is found in possum feces and so it might be that possums are kind of like a reserve of the bacteria and somehow there's transmission between possums and humans but there's no direct correlation it's not like mm. everyone who goes to the doctor says oh and I got scratched by a possum last <laughs> week yeah, yeah. yeah no there's no real no direct mm. transmission it might be indirect so it might be that there's a particular um, insect that's biting the possums and then biting the people that's often how these diseases are spread th through what we call vectors like insects that act as a, a way of transmitting the disease from animals to humans um, but it's something there's a big call on at the moment for more research because the fundamentals of the disease are not understood and mm. it's on the rise and actually I was doing a little bit of research and actually it turns out the person who identified that, that, that the ulcer was caused by a microbacterium was actually Peter McCallum oh. here in Melbourne wow. in 1948. So it's, an, it's a disease with a very strong association. It's not new in, that it's here in, um, in Victoria. So it is something that historically has been here for at least... Um, sort of the last sort of 60 to 80 years. But it is something that we need to know more about because if we're going to be able to look after people's health because, you know, the long-term effects, you can actually treat this disease, but it takes very intense antibiotics, right. mm -hmm. many of which are not available on the PBS, you know, so it's expensive. Mm -hmm. You've got to be on antibiotics for 6 to 12 months. And the scarring often requires um, rest uh, recon uh, reconstruction surgery um, to actually heal the large gaping holes yeah. and wounds that are left. It sounds like a horror movie. It, it, and it's <laughs> happening right here in Victoria. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there also needs to be more awareness about, you know, the fact that if you do have a, a red itchy bite that's not healing properly, go uh, and see yeah. your doctor yeah. and maybe After get... After a year? Well, yeah. but, but that's the thing. It is seems often, extraordinary. But often doctors do take a wait-and-see approach. You yeah. know, just wait and see, And sometimes and see. that's the right approach. And that is. Yeah. But um, in these cases, especially if you are uh, frequent visitor to the coasts of um of victoria and you do like getting out and about outdoors um you know be aware of um of the fact that this um bansdale ulcer is on the increase seems mm. to be interesting that's so regionalized as well you would think that if it was in in you know one section yeah. of the coast it would you know if it was Throughout some Melbourne. sort of insect vector or something it would be a lot more no, widely but distributed some of, but, but some of those um animal populations can be quite geographically isolated. focused mm -hmm. and that's okay. actually why because you find the, that especially if the um disease is um in an in a particular pol possum 
colony or yeah. a particular um, uh, insect uh, population that actually can be quite geographic yeah. and that actually does point to the involvement of um, animals in the spread of disease yeah because yeah, it's not spread person to person yeah hope you're enjoying your brunch folks <laughs> uh, be on the watch uh, out for Van's also yeah yeah I saw that during the week and we were actually hoping to get a guest on and talk about it because it's, a, it's something that does need a lot more awareness you're right Dr Crystal it's um it's one of those things where low incident rate but horrific and increasing yeah so not so good three triple You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Matthew Carell. He is from RMIT University. Matthew, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thanks very much for having me. Now, we, uh, well, I, you know, the guys here got <laughs> sent by me, but I, I saw uh, an article that was written about some of your work during the week, and it kind of piqued my interest, not because of the title. Uh, the title was The Limits of Modelling, and when I read that, I thought, hmm, okay. Um, but then when I started reading it, it was like, wow, this is really interesting stuff. It's not so, talking about the catwalk. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, although that is in the article. Um, but you, so tell us a bit about your field of expertise first before we get into this modelling. I mean, where, sure. where do you play? So I'm a hydrogeologist. That means I study, um, everything to do with groundwater. So mm-hmm. any, any water body that's underneath the ground. Um, and so it's, it's a really interesting, um, topic area because it's, um, really involves a couple of major disciplines. One, um, hydrology. So obviously mm-hmm. understanding water systems yeah, and how they, yeah. how they work. Um, and then secondly, obviously geology. So we have to understand the materials in which the groundwater, um, is stored and, and flows around. And then, um, I also get to work with chemistry a fair bit as well because obviously we're interested in the water quality down there as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's funny you said, you know, hydrogeologists. I remember when, um, that when Brisbane was flooded a few years back quite severely and everyone was like, find me a hydrologist, you know, and there was almost none around. Like they mm. were just, there are a lot of people doing this work. It seems it's not a field you bump into very often. Uh, look, yeah, it's a close community. So, um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of us and we all probably know each other. Right. Really well. Yep. It's, uh, you know, conferences where uh, we'll all get together and you can mm. sort of count a couple of hundred people there. Yeah. How do you go about um, determining, you know, all of this stuff is underground, like a lot of it's, you know, geology stuff is underground. How do you yeah. go about determining what's there when, I mean, you're not digging it all up. So what's what's the mechanism for mapping subsurface features and the hydrology of that sort of area? Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the, the primary technique is good old fashioned drilling a hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically drilling bores that allow us to observe both the geology and the water conditions. So yep. both, uh, water pressures and water quality. Um, that, that's our main go-to technique. Now there's some other techniques that are coming out and have been, um, in development for, you know, um, the last few decades in geophysics. So using remote methods to actually work out what's under the ground, uh, without having to dig a hole. Mm. But, um, primarily, um, I'm pretty old school and I just say, look, if you haven't actually gone down there and drilled a hole to see what the groundwater's <laughs> like down there, then, uh, it's a little bit of guesswork. And, and what are we talking about there? Are we talking about kilometres? Like, a- uh, in cases, um, you know, some deep wells that we drill are upwards of a kilometre, a couple of kilometres. It depends what we're interested in doing, how deep, you know, we want yeah. to understand the water sources. And, um, yeah, particularly, I mean, if mining companies, they often work in, uh, you know, systems that are quite deep geologically. Right. So yeah. they're, they're drilling kilometres fairly routinely. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you're, so when you're drilling, I mean, this is the part I've never really understood about this. I mean, I can imagine putting a drill bit down then pulling it out and seeing what pops out kind of thing but are you sensing and doing things as you go down i mean how do you how do you map 
with with depth? Great question. So there, there are different ways of doing it. The, again, the old-fashioned way is just to actually bring up the core that you're drilling right, through right, right. and sample that directly. Yep. Um, so like yeah. eye scores, that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. like eye scoring. Yeah. Yep. Um, and drilling technology is improving. We can use sonic rigs now that actually get you a really nice intact sample all the way down. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just generally, just to help me out here, how much water is underground versus not underground? Like, how important is groundwater in that sense? Quite a lot, actually. So the amount of fresh water that's stored underground in aquifers is actually significantly more than in our river catchments. So um, we've got so we've got more water under fresh water underground than we do above ground. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Um, rivers, you know, historically they're the sources that we use and utilise. Um, that's largely because they're there and we can easily get the water out of them. Um, but the storage volumes that are stored in aquifers underground are significantly higher than what we mm. have in our river catchments. And, um, and so, yeah. so what we hear or what I've heard is that that's, that is a resource under pressure and under threat. Is that the case? Uh, look, in, in many parts of the world, it is under threat. Um, there are a few different reasons for that. Um, there are some big aquifer systems that are very heavily utilised for irrigation, so growing our food. Um, systems in China, India um, and the US where, you know, they're just pumping huge amounts of water out of the ground to, to grow crops that we use um, and also support livestock. Um, the other big threat, which is the one that really makes the headlines here in Australia, is um, is mining development. Mm. So, for example, if you want to dig a big uh, coal mine, um, we can't have groundwater flooding into the mine pits. So we need to take the water out and depressurise um, so that we can, you know, so the mining company can go in and dig safely. Um, so, so anywhere where we're extracting large volumes of groundwater in order to mine something, whether it be coal or, um, you know, oil and gas or whatever it is, um, th- that causes depressurisation of our aquifers. And then anyone living in the vicinity of those regions potentially has a flow-on impact from that, so that their bores may not work, or there may be a water quality impact, um, so uh, on. I, I can I can see that the the changes in water quality, and especially where we're using that as a as actually a, a resource for whether it's just drinking or otherwise, mm-hmm. um, would be substantial. What one of the things I'm curious about though is that. You know, when we think of, often when people think about geology and the ground, they just think about rock. But it's actually not just rock. I mean, there's, there's fluids that are part of that system that hold everything together. And I think biology as well, right? I mean, a lot of the oh, changes. You bet. And so yeah. how that, I mean, that impact must be substantial. I mean, I've heard of, you know, mining causing earthquakes and so forth in certain parts of the world. I mean, this, this must be, how, how do you go about determining, you know, what that impact will be given that interchange between biology, you know, fluids, gases, and rock. Yeah, great question. So, I mean, at the moment, um, the techniques have developed to the stage where we can model underground systems with reasonable confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big caveat on that, which I'll get to. Um, but so, so modelling is used as a way to, for example, if we want to dig a new coal mine, um, to actually get an idea of how much impact that's going to have on the groundwater before you actually have to go and dig the mine. Mm. Um, so predictive modelling is is a tool that's used. Um, all predictive models, however, though, depend upon the data that we feed them. It's like any yeah. field of science. If you haven't got an observation based on a, a, a real data point, um, your model's science fiction, not science, right? So mm. um, we have to go out and drill those monitoring points like I was talking about, drill, drill wells and observe the groundwater conditions under the ground. And then we feed in that information along with information about the geology into a model. And then we 
you know, run that model with some future scenario, for example, digging a great big hole in the middle of it, <laughs> yep. um, and see what sort of effect that then has on the, right. on the groundwater system. And is, is that always done? Like, like, you know, there are a few examples in the, in the current, um, Australian kind of landscape at the moment where they are discussing putting a great big coal mine in the ground somewhere. Um, yeah. and, and uh, is actually doing this kind of work this extended work on the effect of aquifers and groundwater, is that, is that part of the kind of analysis that goes into the decision-making around whether or not we should have a great big coal mine in a particular location? Yes. So a mining company needs to apply for a water licence, it needs to get environmental approvals, so it needs to demonstrate that it's made some attempt to... Um, you know, characterise what the impact of that mine is going to be on, on groundwater resources. Mm. But as we've just said, if it's garbage in, garbage out when it comes to data, I mean, do we have enough information? Well, this is this is a really huge issue and it's probably one of the big issues amongst my community of, of scientists and engineers at the moment is what is the benchmark and what is considered an acceptable um, level of data and certainty fed into one of these models that then gives us, you know, the confidence that those predictions are, you know, well-founded and realistic. Um, and, you know, in many cases, I mean, the, the piece that you've uh, had a look at, Dr Shane, um, was really arguing that in the case of a particular project that's high profile at the moment in Queensland, the Adani mine, um, the, the data that was collected in order to create a model to predict what would happen to the groundwater was not populated with um, a great deal of you know, real observation data, and thus there's a great deal of uncertainty, um, certainly in my opinion still, about what the impact of that mine would be on the surrounding groundwater system. Mm. And and where do you... It's interesting to me because essentially you have you almost have two competing parties there, um, obviously the Adani Mining Group wanting to build a ginormous mine, um, but those trying to protect the environment as well seemingly both with the same problematic data set. I mean, so, you know, you, you interpret it one way, I interpret it another. That, that seems like a bad place to start this discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think, um, you know, a really strong argument that um, is coming from me and other colleagues within the scientific community is that the, the government, the regulators who hand out approvals, mm. need to be much clearer and much stronger on what they require a mining company to actually do before an approval is given. Right. So there needs to be a really high bar set to say that this model has to be populated with enough data that the level of confidence in the predictions um, is, you know, acceptable to everyone and we all have a reasonable idea of what, you know, the impact of that mine is going to yeah. be. Mm. Yeah. So I suppose a couple of questions just going on from what you were talking about. I mean, first, you know, when you say there's not enough data, I mean, it, it's a case of getting more. Well, why can't you just go and get more is that is that are the limits to do with financing this stuff or is this as you just said stuff to do with regulation and 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 or is it is, mm. i mean it's obviously a very complex and probably highly uh, political and politicized process but mm. what's to stop them going and getting more and, and doing things like that well it's a really great question um so in the case of the adani mine um, Adani did everything they needed to do to get an approval mm. and they collected um, amount of data that, you know, I believe was was insufficient to mm -hmm. resolve the um, some of the uncertainty. Um, but, and but according to the regulators, it was enough. So they just ticked the box and said, well, we did what was required of us. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, they, they obviously, um, for a mining company, there's no point spending another couple of million dollars collecting mm -hmm. more data, drilling more holes, mm -hmm. if they can get the approval without doing that. Yeah. Well, especially um, if drilling more holes 
might sort of make the decision go the other way. <laughs> That's the other you know aspect I mean? of it. I, yeah. I, you know, not, not to be mean about it, but I think, you know, if I've got enough data that sort of gets me across the line, I'm going to stop right there. Mm. Um, especially if all I'm interested in is making a shitload of money. Um, so, you know, the idea that we would expect them to do that, I think if not regulators, yeah. That's just not going to happen, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, that from a mining company's point of view, there's two issues. One, there's the cost of drilling additional wells and getting more data. Two, there's the risk that that data then indicates mm. that there's a bigger impact th- yeah. you know, than they've predicted um, as a result of their project. Um, but so, you know, where you've got an absence of data, as we know as scientists... Um, you're not in a good place, and that causes conflict. And yeah. so, in the case of the Carmichael mine, the Adani mine, um, the, the you know the approval was challenged in court. There's an arduous court case. It's um, confrontational. There's lots of you mm. know hours spent in the courtroom, lots of money spent on lawyers. And at the end of that court case, all of the hydrogeological experts involved um, agreed and said that there wasn't sufficient data to actually resolve this. Yeah. Um, and at that stage, when it's in court, you don't have the power to make a mining company go and collect it. So, so. so uh, before you answer this question, I'm going to give you some context. The question is going to be, what should we be doing to resolve this? And the context is, and Dr. Ailey knows this well, because she's from a field where there is an immense amount of extra data, very, very good data, and one might say it's not helping us that much to solve the problem. So <laughs> with that context, uh, Matthew, where, where do we go from here? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, um, so the groundwater modelling community have made great strides, I think, um, in recent years with basically the area of what they call uncertainty analysis. Mm-hmm. So when you develop a model, rather than just coming up with the one answer that says this is this is the number, this is the impact, yep. um, you run probabilistic models that allow us to get a feel for what is the sort of um, the range of predictions which can reasonably um, be realised in real terms, um, given the data set that we have. And we can then go back and do some uncertainty analysis and work out how much, you know, we could improve the confidence in our estimates by collecting more data. Mm. So that's something that we can do right now we don't need to sort of hunt around we 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 should be you know putting more emphasis on this aspect of the models um during the approval process so that you don't get to that stage of you know being uncertain and not having the data and then not knowing how much data to collect etc sounds like a good plan matthew thanks so much for chatting to us today um tell your you know hydrologist uh, geo friends to call us up we we rarely get you guys on the show you're hard to find so uh it'd be good to hear hear more from that community um good luck with the work and uh hopefully we'll get this to a point where you know we can make better decisions in a, in a more appropriate way great thanks for having me dr matthew corrells from rmit university triple You are listening to Triple R. This is Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Professor Robin O'Hare. She is Professor of Allergy at Monash University and the Alfred Hospital. Robin, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, we've got you in partly because Day of Immunology is coming up, so we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I wanted to start first with your work because you, I mean, allergy research is something that these days seems to be just huge. I mean, probably 15, 20 years ago, you know, it was less of a, a thing, but there's been such a massive growth in in the number of people with allergies over over the last couple of decades it, it seems it, is is that right am i 
sort of correctly identifying the the growth in problems with that, or is it uh, just a, we're better at diagnosing? I mean, what's happened over the last 20 years in allergies? Well, there certainly is an increase in prevalence in allergies, that's for sure. We talk about the, you know, the allergy epidemic, mm-hmm. and it's too fast for being a genetic change, so it's right. certainly partly environmental, and there's a lot of research and a lot of conjecture as to what that might be due to, but it's, it, it is certainly growing, although allergen um, problems have been recognised for many years. And in mm. fact, allergen immunotherapy, which some people recognise as allergy shots, were, were first reported in Lancet back by noon in um, more than 100 years ago. So right. it's really where some of the allergen immunotherapy and re-harnessing the immune response actually started. And we hear the word immunotherapy a lot these days, mainly in... Um cancer sort of work don't we so i mean this is this is something that's been around for a lot longer than that absolutely i think many people are are very impressed by the new cancer immunotherapies but as i said it's more than a hundred years since um pollen was used to try and desensitize some of the hay fever symptoms Mm. and i think that's particularly timely um because now is is the time when we should be thinking about immune therapies for people that, that do have, you know, seasonal hay fever, spring hay fever. And, of course, there was that dreadful epidemic thunderstorm yeah. asthma event in, in 2016, which is uh, what I'll be talking about at the Day of Immunology lecture that I'll be involved in on Friday. Yeah. So, actually, let's stop there for a moment and talk about that. What What's the um, – so, tell us about the Day of Immunology. What's, you know, what's the goal well, and, and your lecture? Day of Immunology, it's obviously important worldwide that people recognise that we, we know a lot about the immune system and how we can harness that for good. There's um, a vaccination cafe that's, that's on that day. I think people are being given tours of immunology labs where we're trying to encourage particularly students to think about careers in science, particularly women students too, because it's mm. In many um, people's mind, it's sort of more of a male career, and that's certainly not the case. And then at the um, Doherty Institute in the auditorium on Friday evening from um, 6 to 9, there's a a public lecture. So um, I'll be speaking, um, Tom Kay will be speaking on endocrinology and diabetes, Mm. and then um, there'll be a speaker from the Peter McCallan Institute discussing some of the new cancer immunotherapies with time for the public to ask us questions and yeah. meet with us too. Sounds great. You, you mentioned careers. How did you get to be into allergy as, as a career? I mean, this is, this is not where I can imagine a lot of people would start their scientific thinking. Well, I started with a science degree. So right. I have a BSc from Monash in yep. um, microbiology and biochemistry and a minor in physiology. And then I decided to go on and study medicine. So I completed my medical degree at Monash. And then as part of my training to be a physician, mm. I was aware around the mid-80s, a lot of people suffered from, you know, life-threatening mm. asthma. That was before we really had the inhaled corticosteroids that are so effective. Mm. And it was obvious to me that we were resuscitating people, we were managing them, educating them. And many of those patients are still my patients today. So it was right. a very attractive area. Um, I was also aware that we were giving allergen immunotherapy, so allergy shots to patients then, bee venom, wasp venom, grass pollens, and it was effective, but we didn't know how it actually worked. So then I went to London and did a PhD in immunology and worked on the immune response to um, house dust mite initially and was one of the first scientists to actually um, isolate T-cells that could react with house dust mite 
and grow them in the laboratory and then study their biology. So I've been interested in immunomodulation for a, a very long mm, time. Mm. And and now there's a, there's a lot of work you're doing with regards to grasses. Am I right there? Yes. So, well, yeah. T- I mean, tell us with with grasses. I mean, I th- I think a lot of people have this. Like, you know, some people go out in the grass and they get an allergic reaction. Their eyes water and so forth. But but it goes a lot beyond that, doesn't it? With the specificity and the, it absolutely yeah. does. I mean, um, spring hay fever probably affects about twenty to twenty five percent of the population. Right. And people recognise that as important. But what they didn't realise, I don't think, is that if you have spring hay fever in southeastern Australia, in Victoria, you have ryegrass pollen allergy. And that means that on those epidemic thunderstorm asthma days, you actually have the susceptibility to have an asthma attack. People with asthma should obviously use their action plans and their therapies during the pollen season. But many people with, with you know, spring hay fever didn't mm. know that they had asthma, so they didn't recognise what happened. Can, can, can I ask for some details there on, on how these things work? Because to me, I, I, I always thought that the, the pollen problem was something that happened in your upper respiratory tract and asthma was something that was lower. Mm-hmm. And yet the same thing's causing... But is that right? Well, we talk about, you know, the upper airway, the lower mm. airway. It's sort of one passage. So, yep. so that's an important one. If you if you have asthma, you should also be considering treating the nose because there's good evidence that okay. that protects about against responses. And what people don't realise is the ryegrass pollen grains are about 30 micron diameter. So they do lodge in the nose and mm-hmm. they typically yep. cause hay fever. But when we have those... Um, thunderstorm epidemics typically in november when the temperature drops there's a lot of turbulence and we've got a lot of ryegrass pollen in the pasture lands north of the great dividing Mm -hmm. range so in those really turbulent thunderstorms there's a dumping of the pollen there's osmotic shock the pollen grains rupture and then there are tiny starch granules about two to three micron that are impregnated with the the important Ah, allergens and they go right down into the airways so people that have not had asthma before suddenly become short of breath and don't recognize it so this is a really important message that i'd like to get out there anyone with spring hay fever is a latent asthmatic and we should recognize with our friends too if they you know in a thunderstorm typically in november they get short of breath or wheezy or tightness in the chest they need a reliever to open the mm, airways or mm. possibly to call triple o but there's also um good news what we were studying in um starting in 2013 there's a tablet a sublingual grass pollen tablet that can go under the tongue it's taken daily dissolved and then swallowed for four months pre-seasonally and what we showed was that the patients that had used that for two or three years before that um, serendipitous yep. trial of nature on the 21st of November 2016, none of those patients had an exacerbation of asthma. So they didn't need steroids and they didn't need to go to the emergency department or their GP, whereas a, a matched um, group of patients who had similar levels of spring hay fever who didn't want to use mm, immunotherapy, who wanted to use medical therapy, um, actually seven out of 17 in that group did have an exacerbation. I mean, that's a great result. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a great result. Well, it, it certainly is because we know that this is a, this is a licensed product. It, it's... Trials have shown that it's yes. available now. Yes, wow. yes. Trials have shown that it's very effective for spring hay fever and for people who get an occasional mm. seasonal wheeze. But to actually see how dramatically effective it was against the um, thunderstorm asthma, mm. it was. Um, and, and Robin, when that event occurred, I'm just I'm just trying to remember the numbers. How many of the people who died in that event were identified as non-asthmatics? 
you know, not aware of being epileptic. Without going into too much specificity about the, the people that died, I think the people that died were actually asthmatics, right. but there were about 9,000 people affected across Victoria mm. with symptoms. So the, 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 the burden and the, the um, fear in people, many of the patients said they thought they were going to die because they didn't recognise what was recognize, going on. Yeah. So it was a very, very, you know, big impact um Because I, I don't think, Victoria. I mean, looking at the information that's been pushed out on this, I don't think the, the information you've just given about people who have, have some hay fever being in that risk category is something that's well known at all. Well, the, the Department of Human Services, we, we do have a committee, which I sit mm-hmm. on, and we, we had a lot of activity before the last pollen season. There's right. little videos, the website, um, getting the message across, and I think probably grand final time is when people should go to their GP. So if you've got asthma, you really should be on your preventers during the, the pollen season. If you have hay fever and you wheeze occasionally, you should be considering now whether you want to have this um, sublingual tablet immunotherapy, mm. so mm. talking to the GP, maybe being referred to an allergist. First dose is given under observation, but then it's done at home. People that um, have never had asthma but had spring hay fever should at the very least have a reliever during October, November, December, and, and mm. they're available over the counter yeah. um, because you know there are clear immunological changes that we were able to demonstrate in the laboratory where we actually take the um, peripheral blood of patients with um, hay fever, the people that had the oral air, and then we can enrich with cultures by incubating them with ryegrass pollen because there are very few of those allergen reactive um, white blood cells in the periphery. So in in the laboratory, they can be incubated with the ryegrass pollen or a control, and then we can use techniques such as flow cytometry to show that we're reprogramming the immune response to be more like a non-allergic individual. So mm-hmm. they, they make, you know, regulatory T cells that dampen the response and they produce protein messengers, cytokines, that, that don't favour allergy antibody but favour the protective immunity and um, other types of antibodies that actually block the presentation of allergen to the um immune response so mm. that we're, we're really reprogramming the patients to behave more like a, a, yeah. a non-allergic individual. Mm. So I wanted to ask, is it is it just ryegrass or are there other pollens as well? Because, I mean, the process you described have sounded to me like exploding grains, basically, with these little starch. I mean, surely that would happen with other grasses and things as well, or is it that one that people are more responsive yeah, no, to? No, ryegrass is the important one. Ryegrass is by far the major mm-hmm. grass. It was introduced from England. It's, yeah. it's wind-pollinated. It was another one of those perhaps mistakes like... Like, um, like rabbits, but it is it is a feature of ryegrass, and this was actually demonstrated by the late Bruce Knox, a University of Melbourne professor of botany, and um, Professor Jenks Sufiaglu, who's now down at Deakin. They they produced a very nice. So, um, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Good luck. Have fun with your talk uh, next. Is it next Friday? It's Friday. This Friday, Friday, Friday this week, 27th of yep. April. Mm. Um, so get along to that, folks. If you um, just do a Google on Dave Immunology, I'm sure you'll find a whole lot of information. Professor Robin O'Hare, thanks so much for chatting to us. My pleasure. Thank you. 102.7. Yeah, we're back. You're listening to Einstein at GoGo, folks. Um, I just wanted to mention something, and Dr. Ailey will probably give me some strange looks when I mention this, but um, it was an interesting article that uh, made me think about the the way we put information out and how we respond to it. And it was this article that came out from some research, uh, research at the University of Texas at Austin, um, Department of Integrative Biology, and they were looking at the resilience of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's one of those articles where you read it and you go, oh, Okay, is this 
going to be another disaster, you know, story like the worst possible case. Uh, you know, th- these things get pretty depressing after a while. But this one was one that, and I mentioned this, you know, with some care because it's one that says, well, actually, um, there is a, a level of genetic variation that exists in parts of the barrier reef that will enable it to survive longer than people thought, according to this modelling. And by that, you know, we're talking about about 50 years longer than people thought, which is actually quite significant. And it's the the reef's ability to, you know, essentially reproduce itself. So, and it, I mean, you can read the details, but what it comes down to basically is evolution. So you get parts of it, you get parts of the way that the corals reproduce where there are adva- genetic advantages that just occur. And if you can get those advantages and transplant them around so that other parts of the reef get those advantages as well without just the randomness of it, then you might be able to actually do some some real good. So it's it's one of those um, these pieces of information which I put in the. Yes, you really screwed this shit up, but there's still time to fix it. Yeah. Category like so, it's not one of those. Oh, we don't have to worry about it. Sort no, of certainly not. It's it's the exact opposite. It's the look. We thought you'd absolutely screwed the, mm. this completely over, but some really good research from this group at Austin has said, well, actually, there's some resilience here that we hadn't really seen before, and if 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 it pans out, we may be able to utilise that resilience to extend the life of the reef, hopefully give us time to sort our shit out on land. But you'd have to act now. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it comes back to that. So, But it's, it's another one of those things where I don't like it when we put things in the too hard category mm-hmm. and the whole shame category. It's like, shame, shame, it's too hard. It's, done. it's like, no, actually, there's a chance here that if you do act relatively soon you can deal with this mm-hmm. and with some really smart science around the way the reef reproduces we might just be able to you know still get things to where we want them to be well see that's the key isn't it i mean you know you've got 2016 30 percent of the reef now gone bleached bleached yep. completely beyond repair and i mean yeah. i think that's the issue is is i mean the question would be can you transplant this stuff back into those yeah. areas and recolonize yeah. because when you get these big bleaching events that's that's the biggest danger is that these things are so sudden and yeah. so catastrophic and look the cool thing about this doesn't is, happen slowly this research is also done with the australian institute of marine science yeah, and the university great. of melbourne yeah, um so it's got local local yeah. involvement as well the the genetics behind it is a in looking at it in a way that hasn't been done before in the way you know these colonies actually mm. reproduce but there's some nice stuff yeah. there so I, I think it's it's one of those stories that says look you've still got a chance to fix this up and you you might be able to not completely save everything but at least there's save. Hope. there's some hope so you know get on your bike do something we're gonna to have to say goodbye and dr Haley, it's been great having you back i love having the climatologist in the it's room it's good thank yeah, you it's, it's great fun. to be back it's all fun. dr crystal don't forget you in as always don't forget to look up ways you can celebrate your amazing immune system by going to the day of immunology website for all the yeah. great events i'm going to be getting a free flu vaccine on friday at melbourne town hall uh, at the vaccination cafe yeah i like that you can get a shot of coffee and a shot of immunity at the same time <laughs> You should do voiceover rants for <laughs> immunology events. Uh, look, it is it is really important, and long-term listeners of the show know that Dr. Crystal and I are both obsessed with the immune system, and other people are now too. I know, it's great. Let's share the love this week for the day of immunology. Do they do the coffee intravenously as well? Yeah, yeah I it's all, so. it's all, in the one, all in the one injection. <laughs> Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We will chat to you again next week. Have a fabulous Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.